even my horses would stand in a circle around me with their chins on my shoulder. One horse, Ollie in particular, put his chin on my shoulder and rest his cheekbone against mine and just close his eyes and just hug me. And the only way a horse can hug you, I suppose. People totally take for granted what the animals know. They just know so much more than what we give them credit for. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 16 of The Lip. Now I don't know about you, but I've always had a bit of a thing for sausage dogs. They're pretty cute with their long, long bodies and short, short legs. This is a story about a sausage dog who never looked in the mirror. She was so confident she thought she was a sheepdog. And because she thought she was a sheepdog, well, she was a sheepdog. It was that simple. It's also a love story between a southern man and a southern woman, and how, when everything went wrong, that woman turned her grief into art. Some people are confirmed city dwellers. Some can't think of anything worse. Harriet Bremner is, by her own admission, one of the latter. She grew up on farms in the South Island, and in her 29 years, she spent as little time as possible in the concrete jungle. Even when she does, she brings as much of the country with her as possible. I always had to have my horse just 15 minutes from me in town so that I had something to do in the evenings because I'm not not a good city person. Coffee's good. Coffee's better in the city, but <laughs> um, I love my animals and my wide open spaces, so I wouldn't trade it for anything. It's kind of ironic that Harriet met the love of her life, a guy called James Heyman, who disliked the city as much as she did, right bang in the middle of the big smoke, Christchurch to be exact. They were both 18 at the time. I was in my first year at Canterbury University. We bumped into each other at the student races just through a mutual friend. He caught my eye because he was very tall and he was wearing his cowboy boots and moleskin shirt and his Akubra wide-brimmed hat leaning against a Hilux and he winked at me. I pretty much fell in love with him instantly but um, we hadn't even talked yet. <laughs> so we hung out at the races that day and then I think over that summer we saw each other maybe three times because I was back up in Kikarang north of Kaikoura, he was way down south farming so um, we were about an eight or nine hour drive away from each other. Despite the distance, they managed to see each other a handful of times over that summer. I hadn't seen him since the races for about a month, I don't think, and um, he rang me and very traditionally invited me to go to a ball with him and it was very sweet. We just had a great fun night, it danced away and he actually had a mullet as well at the time, which... <laughs> He loved his mullet, but it was like no other mullet you've ever seen, so it was sort of curly and unbrushed. He sort of was classy, messy, if that makes sense. Rugged and gorgeous smile and amazing eyes. He was seriously cheeky, um, loved a good time. 
the sort of person that if somebody met him and talked to him, he made you feel like you were the only person in the world that he was talking to. So all of my friends always said that Bob made them feel really special when he talked to them because he always used somebody's name and looked them straight in the eye and took time out to ask them about themselves and what they were doing in their life. He was a bit of an old soul in a way. He had friends that were in their 80s and then he got on really well with six-year-olds as well. So he was kind of somebody that just could get on with anyone. Just to clear up any confusion here, James and Bob are the same person. His real name's James, his nickname's Bob. Over the course of the story, Harriet uses both. Anyway, the following year, they both found themselves studying in Christchurch together, which cemented their relationship. But at the end of that year, James returned to his family farm in the Hakataramea Valley in South Canterbury, and Harriet remained in Christchurch to finish her studies before continuing on to train as a teacher. Basically, we did long distance for seven years. I spent years going down to his place in the weekends and I'd be studying and sitting on a tractor with him at the same time. Basically we just bonded over paddocks, sheep, cows and tractors. <laughs> Sometimes during their seven years of long distance, they wouldn't see each other for three months. The separation was hard, but even though they'd met when they were just 18, they knew they were meant to be. And then finally, after Harriet finished her studies and qualified as a teacher, it was time to move permanently to the Hekka, which is what the locals call the Hakataramea Valley. The Hakataramea, the Hekka. Which is around 85 kilometres inland from Oamaru. Every way you have to drive out in the Hekka, you had to do sort of a big horseshoe. So that's what makes it isolated. It was just kind of in the middle of a whole lot of hills. And this huge valley, nestled into the hills, is prime farming country. Everybody was like, oh finally, they've finally done it. It was really exciting, it was something we'd been looking forward to for a long time. And I finally got to turn his sort of bachelor pad into, <laughs> into a home and put some nice things in there and, and whatnot. And um, it was just amazing not having to worry about when will I see you again. It's a stunning, stunning place. There's no other place like it. It's just magnificent. The mountains and the views. Isolated. I had no cell phone reception at my house. When you rode up onto the back of the farm and just looked out over the valley on the horse, where there's no sound, no noise. The Hakataramea River running down the middle of the valley. Just magic. Not long after Harriet moved onto the farm, she got a teaching job at the local school and helped out on the farm whenever she could. James was a workaholic. He worked all day, every day. I think he was ploughing paddocks when he was seven years old. He could fix anything. He could take a whole engine out of something and put it back together without so much as reading a manual. He was um, Mr Fix-It on the farm. There was nothing he couldn't do, really. We were quite happy just to sit in front of the fire and have a glass of red wine and eat dinner on a Saturday night. We told a few porkies so that we didn't have to go out socially to a few things. You know, we just enjoyed just sort of hanging out together. It really was perfect. Farms, of course, are full of animals. 
one of the most special animals on the Heyman farm was James's dog. We had a little long head Jack Russell called Finn, and he was a seriously amazing dog, like one in a million dude. He was Bob's best friend. He had this funny trot. He was the most unathletic Jack Russell you've ever seen. You know, he'd trot from one side of the room to the other and he'd be puffed. One day, James was moving stock up the road and the school bus went past and he actually had lost Finn. And Finn was sitting on the passenger seat in the school bus next to the bus driver with all the kids and he did a wee run to school and back. It was just such a hard case. James had really curly hair that he kind of didn't brush and, and Finn, they just sort of looked like they were meant to be together. But I got home from a show one day and found Finn dead on the lawn and we think he had a heart attack. James was absolutely devastated. They gave Finn a fitting funeral. We talked about getting another dog and, and Bob didn't want another Jack Russell because he didn't want to try and replace Finn because he was one of those insanely cool animals. She suggested instead that they get a miniature dachshund, more colourfully known as a sausage dog. They've just got the most wicked sense of humours. They're just hard cases and they are very loyal dogs and they're just unique and such good companions. James was sort of not ready and I found some sausage dog puppies on Trade Me and and I begged and I begged and I begged and then he said I could look at them. When she contacted the breeder, there was a long waiting list. But Harriet was in luck. The breeder was keen for the pups to find homes on farms, so she went to the top of the list, although she didn't actually tell James what she'd done. Instead, I paid the deposit and waited for the call. When it came, she told James she was going riding for the day, but instead she made the six-hour round trip to the farm where her six-week-old Dachshund was ready to be brought home. I rang James when we were coming in the driveway and I said, oh, you better meet us down in the paddock. Can you give us a hand to unload the horse, which I don't usually need help. So anyway, he just thought he'd be helpful and come down. And he arrived in the car and Poppy was the size of a beer bottle at that point. She was tiny. He wound down the window and I passed him Poppy. I think he said, what is this? <laughs> he fell in love with her straight away. Yeah, so from that moment on, she he would tuck in his jersey He'd open the neck of his natronet jersey and drop her down there and she would actually cuddle round his tummy with his jersey tucked in and that's how he carried her round for quite a long time until she got too big. And they were the best of mates. Sausage dogs were first bred in Germany 300 years ago to hunt badgers. And they've got some defining characteristics. First, of course, is that they're super long, like, well... A sausage. They have long floppy ears that hang down to the jawbone, long snouts that are no doubt good for sniffing out badgers, and extremely short legs, which would be seriously handy for getting into badger dens, but as it turns out, not so handy for climbing in and out of the quintessential Kiwi farming vehicle, the Hilux. So Poppy, with her one centimetre long legs, had her work cut out for her as a six-week-old pup. She sort of crawled at that stage because her legs were so little. Once she grew, Poppy was out on the farm with James every day. No one actually told her that sausage dogs have their limits. She thought she was one of the sheep and cattle dogs, although there were some things she simply couldn't manage, even when fully grown. 
she can't get into a vehicle or a tractor or anything on her own so she requires somebody to pick her up and lift her in. And we did used to tease Pops about wishing she had longer legs but she's got the heart of a lion and the bark of a hunt away so she actually loves the sheep yards. She'll run up and down the race all day chasing sheep and she'll have a standoff with a big Angus cattle beast and win because I think half the time they don't know what she is so they just decide to run. She's tough and she's got all the sheep dogs under control. She's the leader of the pack. One day we were loading lambs and a stock truck came to pick up the lambs and the truck driver got out of the truck and he saw Pops and he patted her and he said oh she's very cute but where's your sheep dog? And James said this is it and he sort of laughed and thought we were kidding and he said oh do you not have a dog here to load the lambs? And James said no this is going to load the lambs. I think he thought we were mad but anyway Poppy proceeded to be up and down the race, up and down right up to the top level of the back of the sheep truck and loaded a whole truck and trailer load of lambs by herself and the truck driver was just miffed. He couldn't be, I don't think he'd ever seen anything quite like it. She just always blew people away with what she was capable of doing and hard case to watch as well, a sausage dog doing the work of a big hunt away. James would proudly lead her around, carry her around if we went to Wanaka or something. He would have no qualms about carrying her down the main street. The boys' annual duck shoot every year. Um, you know, the boys all rock up with their Labradors and this and that, and James would arrive with a sausage dog, and he was so proud of it, and he'd come home and tell me how, how well Poppy did at retrieving the ducks, and he was just stoked that, you know, she was one of the keenest dogs there, even though I'm sure the boys gave him a lot of stick for it. By the end of 2016, life couldn't have seemed more full of possibilities for Harriet and James. We had talked about marriage a lot and we were just getting into that stage in our lives. Our friends were starting to get engaged and married. She didn't know it at the time, but James had already done the gentlemanly thing and asked her dad for her hand in marriage. But in January last year, there was an accident on the farm. The pain of what happened is still too fresh for Harriet to talk about, and even if she could, she wouldn't, out of respect for James's family. It's enough to say that in one moment she was whole, the next she was broken. James was gone forever. Shock. It's disbelief. Um your whole world just completely crumbles. You can't breathe, can't talk, can't eat, don't function at all. I just completely broke in half. One of her few comforts was Poppy. If there was any comfort, that would be the closest thing to it, I think. She's my last, my closest link to James. We were a family. I couldn't live without their dog. I still couldn't. It's my biggest fear that something's going to happen to her. She, poor thing, was pretty lost for a while. She would go into her room and walk around every single person and look up at them. She just looked for him for a long time, I think. Um, and she one day barked at me for 12 hours straight. <laughs> like she was grieving herself or letting her frustrations out on me that he wasn't there anymore. And if his truck drove in the driveway, she would 
wag her tail and run out to it and search the whole thing high and low and then kind of drop her tail down and sort of come back to me and it was almost like she was like, sorry mummy, we couldn't find him. It's just heartbreaking. Even even my horses after James passed away would stand in a, a full circle around me with their chins on my shoulder. One horse, Ollie in particular, put his chin on my shoulder and rest his cheekbone against mine and just close his eyes and just hug me and the only way a horse can hug you I suppose. But even they, they would just stand at the fence and stare through the kitchen window like they knew as well. People totally take for granted what the animals know. I mean, they just know so much more than what we give them credit for. 27 and effectively widowed, Harriet lost track of time in the days, weeks and months following James's accident. Everything from that time is so blurry, she doesn't know who told her that James was about to propose, but she suspects it was her mum and dad. He was about four days away from proposing. He was taking me to Stewart Island to propose. And he'd asked Dad on Christmas Day at the end of 2016 if he could marry me. So, yeah, we, we nearly got there. Very nearly. I'm sure it would have been amazing. It's gone through my head a lot of times about what it would have been like. He was making sure he had all his ducks in a row and, yeah, and he was waiting for the perfect moment. A couple of Harriet's friends knew that she and James had been looking at rings before he died and that she had a photo on her phone of the ring she loved the most. They showed it to James's brother Tom. It's an aquamarine. We chose it because it reminded us of the mountains and the lakes all around the Hacker. And he, um, I think, pretty instantly rang the jeweller and ordered it. James flew light aircraft, and when the ring arrived, Tom took Harriet to the aircraft hangar on the farm. A friend of mine, Kaylee Bell, who's a country singer, um, she actually wrote a song for James. Um, and so we listened to that together and then he presented me with the ring that James was going to propose to me with on behalf of his brother, which was just an incredible thing for um, his brother to do for me. So it's extremely special. Just can't believe he had the strength to do that. Thinking of me at that time when he was also broken as well is very amazing. Harriet stayed on at the farm in the Hakataramea Valley for a few months after her world shifted on its axis. She also spent a lot of time at her parents' farm in North Canterbury. I couldn't be on my own. I came up and um, worked for Dad on the farm for the winter, being outside with the cows, doing physical exercise all day, driving the tractor, and being with animals was something I needed. James's death made no sense. It probably never will. But one night, back in the hacker, it dawned on Harriet that there was a way to preserve her memory of him forever. My sister-in-law and I were trying to figure out a little business idea for me, something that I could maybe get stuck into. And um, I said to her, I've actually always wanted to write a children's book and 
and she said oh that's a great idea and um so she actually went and had a shower and when she came out I told her I had a draft. I can't explain it, it just kind of hit me. It was a story about what she knew best, the outlandish partnership between James and Poppy, a southern man and his sausage dog. It was minus ten outside. Pops gave Bob a look as she opened one eye. It's too cold for me, she thought, and she curled up inside. Bob picked her up, basket and all, and smuggled her into his truck by the door. The road was quite icy. The truck groaned as it slid. Strong rubber tyres grabbed at the ice to help them not slip. It's a book about friendship. And the moral of the story is that without Bob, Poppy can't achieve certain things, like she can't get into the tractor without his help. And together they make such a great team. And in life, you know, it, it doesn't matter what we look like if our tummy's low to the ground and our legs are too short. If we surround ourselves with the right people in our lives and true friends and good friends, then we can achieve things that we didn't think were possible otherwise. She teamed up with an illustrator called Dana Johnston and tapped into the rural community to crowdfund the money needed to publish it. She called the book Bob and Pops, an unlikely friendship between a southern man and his miniature dachshund. It was such a hit, she has another storybook in the pipeline. I guess it's my grief right there in a book. It's been the most scary thing that I've ever done because I've always wanted to write a book but never thought I was good enough and I guess when something like this happens in your life it just is a massive reminder of how special and precious every day is and you don't know what tomorrow will bring and why do we worry so much about what people think of us and I just thought actually I'm just going to go for it. It just felt right, it just felt like the right thing to do and he was such an incredible person. He deserves to be on every bookshelf in New Zealand and around the world. And that's my goal, was to get him in as many bookshelves as I can. It's more than 18 months now since Harriet's future took a turn she didn't see coming. A future she didn't choose and never would have. It upsets me when people say you've just got to move on. And I think that's a very old-fashioned way of looking at grief and looking at how these things work because you don't get over it and you don't move on but you can move forward. One of the hardest things with grief is that the clock keeps ticking and the days keep passing and the world doesn't stop just because you've lost somebody. It just rolls on by and the reality of the fact that they've gone sinks in more and more the more time that goes past. It doesn't get easier though. It's unbelievable to think that he's been gone for two birthdays now. He'll be 27 forever. 27 forever, but with a legacy in children's literature he could never have imagined. Somebody told me the other day that their child sleeps with Bob and Pops under their pillow every night and they are under no circumstances allowed to remove it. And if they forget to take Bob and Pops with them, there are massive amount of tears. It's fairly overwhelming. It, it's a real mix of emotions because I've achieved a dream, but 
not for the right reason. So it's very hard to think that this is amazing when, when Bob isn't standing beside me celebrating with me. I think he would be really proud of me. And I think he is really proud of me, wherever he is. Yeah, just have to be brave. You don't have a choice in grief, that's the thing. Everybody says you're strong and this and that, but actually you have no choice. Absolutely no choice. You either sink or swim, so you've got to swim. You've been listening to The Lip. I'm Megan McChesney. When I visited Harriet in North Canterbury, she was still struggling with the immense hole James has left in her life. She still has Poppy, of course. She describes herself as the most overprotective dog parent you'll ever meet. The pair of them live in a cute little house not far from Harriet's parents' farm. She stays busy working as a relief teacher. Poppy sometimes comes with her to school, which the kids think is pretty awesome and she still rides her horses whenever she can. If you want to find out more about Harriet and her books, you can check her out at her website, gertandpops.com. That's G-U-R-T and pops.com. Her books have found homes all over the world. There's a link to the Gert and Pops website on our website, thelippodcast.kiwi. While you're there, you'll also find some photographs of Harriet, Poppy and James. You'll also find all of the Lip's other episodes on the lippodcast.kiwi. And if you want to make sure you don't miss any new episodes as they go up, feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or wherever else you find your podcasts. I do believe that's it from me. See you again soon for another episode of The Lip.